It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 310 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Today's episode was first aired in November, so we won't be sharing today's virus news. Now for our main story. Everyone is fighting the same coronavirus. But nearly a year into the pandemic, quality of life and control of the pathogen's spread look vastly different across the world. Bloomberg's COVID resilience ranking scores the largest 53 economies on their success at containing the virus with the least amount of social and economic disruption. Back in November, I spoke to Bloomberg's Rachel Chang, who worked on the resilience ranking project. I spoke to her about the data and the analysis that went into determining the best places for weathering the pandemic. The findings on the relative strength of healthcare systems around the globe and how they've succeeded or failed to manage the pandemic may surprise you. I was wondering if you might start off just explaining what this new COVID resilience ranking does and and who it's for. So our idea is to be able to give an accurate view based on data of what's going on in the world right now. Because what we've seen of COVID-19, it's it's pretty much the biggest public health crisis of a generation. And not only that, everything that we thought we knew about the world and how different countries would handle a a pandemic of this scale has actually been proven wrong. There were many pandemic preparedness and healthcare adequacy type of rankings before COVID-19 pandemic. And you had countries like the US and the UK top all of those rankings, which clearly have turned out to be wrong. At the same time, this year, we've seen a lot of quite surprising success stories. We've seen developing countries really come out with unique strategies. Some of them have eliminated the entire virus from their local communities. And so the starting point was really that COVID-19 is going to transform, has transformed the world. And Rachel, you know, this this tool has a wealth of data. Um, but of course, we've seen a lot of questions, a lot of interrogation about whether or not COVID-19 data can be trusted. And I was wondering if you might go into that as it relates to the resilience ranking. Right. I mean, the starting point really was that we needed to have uh, daily figures for cases and deaths. And a lot of places have uh, collated that the ones where the, the database we're relying on is by the Johns Hopkins University. Of course, we know that cases and fatalities are underreported across the board. That's just um, a reality for every country. It's not something that is limited just to developing countries with 
uh, porous data. It's something that we've seen repeatedly in advanced uh, economies as well. A big fact is just that testing was extremely inadequate in many major countries. And so there were a lot of people, and I'm sure you know some, who have felt that they probably were sick with COVID, but were never able to get a test to confirm that. In terms of fatalities, a lot of people as well have died at home before being diagnosed. There are certain countries like Russia where if somebody has a comorbidity, has another disease, and then dies after contracting COVID-19, sometimes they mark that down as uh, a fatality not due to COVID-19. So from what we know from experts, all of that data is underreported, underdetected across the board. One of the things we're looking at um, in the future, although it's not available yet, is something called excess mortality that countries record for the whole year. So we can see in countries with pretty good overall death data by comparing what their 2020 number is to, say, 2019 or the average between 2015 and 2019, you can see that excess that will be due to COVID-19. And sometimes that is way more than what the official COVID-19 fatality is. But having said all that, I think we have to go into this project with an understanding that the data is inadequate, that it probably won't be adequate for a long, uh, long period of time. But at the same time, it's still a valuable way for us to have a picture of what's going on right now. And I was wondering if maybe we could break down some of the, the data um, that you do mention and include in the resilience ranking. And one is, of course, and this is a, a term we've heard used a lot, is the positive test rate. Why is this particular factor important when considering and, and why did you choose to include it in the resilience ranking? So the positive test rate is something that experts do look at um, to look at the situation in a country and how much undetected infection is in the community. So a very high positive test rate basically means that doctors are only testing the sickest people, people who have become so sick that they have to go to hospital. Um, very often, they are quite close to a, a very terrible deterioration in their disease. Um, and what that means is that there is just so many cases out there in your community that haven't been detected. These are people probably moving around and infecting other people. So it's a way to tell uh, how contained or how in control the doctors and the officials are of a situation on the ground. So what we see, for example, is that when the infection, the positive test rate falls below 5% for 14 days, that is when the WHO says that governments should think about relaxing or relaxing the lockdown restrictions. Prior to that, uh, there's a dangerous amount of infection in the community. Now, speaking of lockdowns, actually, that is another indicator you have on the ranking, the lockdown strictness indicator. And I was wondering if you might go into what that is and, and maybe continuing on from your previous discussion, why is this so important for us to understand almost from a global level? Yeah, this is a very interesting indicator because I think it's something that's really evolved over the course of the crisis. So it's an indicator that's produced by Oxford University. They have a team of researchers who are just monitoring the number and the strictness of lockdown policies that every government in the world is imposing. So in the initial phase of the crisis, what we did see is that uh, countries that impose very strict measures very early on, so what we call that swift and uh, strong and early action, uh, were very successful at containing the virus. So the economies that are ranked in our top 10, for example, New Zealand, uh, Taiwan as well, these were places that did have a really stringent reaction early on. But what we've actually seen as 
the pandemic has gone on is that if a government currently has the need to impose, again, strict policies of lockdown, that points to actually a failure of containing the coronavirus. It points to a failure of maintaining the gains from previous lockdowns. And so in the in, in our ranking, we've taken stringency as a negative thing. So the more stringent your current situation is, the lower your score in this indicator. Because I think what we've seen almost a year into the pandemic is that that sort of disruption that lockdowns bring has been extremely economically costly has been socially very costly to a lot of people. There's been a, a, a huge mental health toll from isolation and disruption. And we, we see it as a negative to people's lives. And that's what we wanted to reflect. Now, that indicator does seem to have a lot to do with, with something else on the ranking, which is community mobility. But I was wondering if you might go into how, how that differs, how the ranking for community mobility is slightly different from the lockdown indicator. Yeah, so the lockdown, the stringency indicator from Oxford University um, is the number and uh, strictness of government policies. And so, you know, it captures the letter of what governments are trying to do, but it does not capture whether or not there is enforcement and compliance uh, on the ground. And what we're seeing is that, you know, there are a lot of places where governments are imposing all of these intense rules, but there's no enforcement, people are not following it. Um, and then there are also places where governments don't have to really impose any kind of rules, but because of a high level of social compliance, a high level of population ownership of the problem, people uh, kind of decide for themselves that they don't want to be as mobile as before and they stay home more when they hear that there are more cases. So that's two sides of the same coin of disruption. And so at this point, we look at mobility as the higher mobility is to the pre-pandemic baseline, the better situation an economy is in right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. One indicator that you do include on this ranking is is going to be more and more relevant as we go forward. And that is, of course, the vaccine access indicator. I was wondering if you might maybe unpack a little bit about what people can understand from from this data point. Yeah, this is a really exciting indicator and one that we put a lot of effort into piecing together, going off on um, a database that was originally put together by some Duke researchers. But, you know, this is such a shifting thing. Uh, countries are uh, announcing new agreements every day. Vaccines themselves are making so much progress every day. So it's something we've really had to keep on top of. But we think it's a really valuable way of, uh, you know, not just revealing something that's, that, as you said, is, is the most important thing that everybody's thinking about right now, but it's also a way to take that ranking and kind of pivot it towards the future because the biggest beneficiary of this indicator being included are countries where, and the U.S. is the number one example of this, countries who otherwise have lost control of their situations. 
I was wondering if you might just go through some of the other variables that are measured in the resilience ranking and and perhaps just very briefly the rationale in including some of these variables. So some of the uh, other things that we've included are pre-pandemic measures like for example, the universal healthcare coverage indicator, which looks at 23 different aspects of an economy's um, healthcare system, ranging from very basic stuff like basic childhood vaccines to something like cancer care. And what that indicator was shown, although it was um, the database was put together before COVID-19, was that it was really gave an idea of the strength of a country's healthcare system, which we think makes a big difference in how patients are helped. The other thing that that does reflect is the ability of a place to continue providing non-COVID-19 healthcare even through the pandemic. And we've seen that that's quite an important facet for maintaining uh, a normal life for a lot of people. Um, Another thing as well, we've included the United Nations Human Development Index, which uh, is quite widely known and widely used as a measure of a country's uh, well-being. It's made up of three components. One of that is life expectancy. The second one is wealth per capita. And the third one is expected years of schooling, which we think can act as a proxy for population's trust in science, which has really emerged as something that makes a difference in terms of whether people are following uh, public health guidance, like mask wearing, hand washing. These kinds of small things can really make a big difference. How are you hoping a user of this tool can can apply this information and what can they they take away from this resilience ranking i think i think the main thing that people can take away first of all is that the coronavirus is not something that cannot be controlled the economies that have placed really high on the ranking a lot of the people in these places are living lives pretty much the pre-pandemic life, you know, before COVID-19 was even a thing. Decisive and united action has really helped some of these places. What the ranking really provides is um, an idea of where to look for some of these strategies, right? Some of these countries have pioneered some of the best strategies to fight something like this. Secondly, I think what the virus really helps to do is to put things in perspective for people, because I think it's pretty much a once in a lifetime thing where there is a single event that has affected people around the world in the same magnitude. And finally, I think it is a ranking that aims to kind of dispel some of the myths that people have to kind of change people's minds and show them that, you know, the world is not, does not um, exist according to some of these old ideas that we had that kind of ruled the world for so many years, right? Like the best healthcare systems are not necessarily where we think they are. The strongest science-led leadership are not necessarily in the places that we think they are. And I think one of the things that emerged that has emerged is that Asia as a region has been extremely effective at controlling the coronavirus because of very strong public health systems, because of contact traces on the ground, because of publicly funded nurses, because of free health coverage. And these are all things that we want to show people are very important in the coronavirus era. That was Rachel Chang. And that's it for our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 bureaus around the world, visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Forges, Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. 
Today's main story was reported by Rachel Chang. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Rick Schein and Francesca Levy. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.